Hello and welcome to This Is How We Do It, a podcast series by Women as One, where we explore practical solutions to gender equity issues in medicine with a specific focus on cardiology. I am Rebecca Ortega, Managing Director of Women as One, and today's guest is Kathy Garzio. Kathy is the Vice Chair and Director of Finance and Administration for the Department of Medicine at the Stanford University School of Medicine, and we've invited her to the program to chat about the widely pervasive gender wage gap in medicine. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thank you. So I want to talk a little bit about the data, as I usually do in these episodes, a pretty eye-popping publication came out in JAMA Cardiology in 2018, highlighting the snowball effect of the gender wage gap in cardiology in particular. And the article indicated that with all factors considered over the course of a career, a woman cardiologist will earn $2.5 million less than her male counterpart. And that is a very big chunk of change and a much larger figure (laughs) than the roughly $35,000 annual pay gap, which I think gets talked about a lot more often than the the career pay gap. But it really kind of strikes at the magnitude of this issue, the magnitude of the the wage gap in cardiology as it relates to, to women. This is an issue that's been, I think, published on pretty frequently at this point, and everybody knows about it. And this is not an issue that's sort of exclusive to medicine. But the question, I think, becomes, so what do you do about it? So if we all know about this, I'm assuming most people are really not very happy about this. How do we change it? Mm-hmm. And you were a part of the working group that developed the 2019 ACC, American College of Cardiology, Health Policy Statement on Cardiologist Compensation and opportunity equity. So I want to start there, and I would ask you to please tell us a little bit about how that statement came to be, how did it come about, Mm -hmm. and about your role in that work. Sure, I'd be glad to do that. I was asked to participate in the committee by my boss, the chair of our Department of Medicine, who is a cardiologist, Dr. Robert Harrington, and it was chaired by Dr. Pam Douglas from Duke, I believe. And the goal was to try to follow a model that had been set by some other specialty societies in making clear statements about compensation equity in a given specialty. And I think the American College of Surgeons had done it most recently, if I'm not mistaken. In the group, we spent a fair amount of time. Oh, and I should also say that the group represented not just academic institutions like Duke or Stanford, but also large private practices, and it also had geographic diversity. So it was quite a mixed group of participants, mainly of physicians or academic physicians. So long story short, our goal was to try to come up with a set of principles, really, around compensation equity for cardiology, but that could transcend these different practice settings. And that's why, really, from the very first discussion, it was steered in the direction of being very principle-based. We know that if you don't start with principles, you don't get very far. And so we spent a lot of time doing that, and we discussed how different practice settings in cardiology approach compensation differently. And I would say on one end of the spectrum, the kind of an egalitarian approach, I think a a good example might be the Mayo Clinic, which really sets a salary and has a small opportunity for a bonus, very market-driven, and people work for their salary and they do the work that is put in front of them. And 
Then on the other end of the spectrum might be more of a surgical model, what I think of as a surgical model, where it's really production-based. And so you do more, you earn more. And we wanted to take into account those models, but also think about what sort of principles might govern a more equitable approach. The other thing that we looked at was not just salary, not just what's in your paycheck, but all types of what can be classified as compensation, such as the obvious one being incentive compensation, bonuses, others being benefits, payment into a pension plan or a retirement plan, certain kinds of perks, such as educational allowances or other executive funds and things like that. So we really wanted to define compensation very, very broadly. So that was sort of the framework of the discussion. And we met for several months and drafted, took turns, or some of us were assigned different parts of the document to draft. And I think for considering it was drafted by a committee, it turned out pretty well. No, I think so too. And I actually, I reread it today in advance of this call, just to refresh my memory. It's very comprehensive, but I think digestible and certainly practical for the different types of practice environments, as you were mentioning. So it's an incredibly useful tool. And I would encourage anybody who's listening who has not read this tool to look it up and we can share it on our website as well. But I find, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is a struggle because my background is in sort of education and implementation. You know, we have all of these wonderful publications and recommendations coming out of various medical societies that I think are very much on point and, and as you mentioned, sort of bring the right folks together and are talking about the right things. And yet we're, we're not seeing the changes that we need to see. So, mm-hmm. and or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Has there been sort of a, a dissemination effort with this beyond sort of its, its publication? Have you seen the adoption of these recommendations in any sort of meaningful way? Or do you feel like, you know, we've done our job, we've put this out there, and that's the intent of this exercise? Well, I would say it's been mixed, but I want to sort of qualify that a little bit. First of all, what I hoped, and again, I'm not a physician, so perhaps I was a bit naive in this, but I had hoped that other specialty societies would follow suit and would draft their own sets of principles because this is not a problem that's unique to cardiology. It's pretty prevalent in medicine for there to be this sort of wage gap. And it's true across other industries as well. So I had hoped that some other specialty societies would follow suit. I'm not aware of that happening in a large way. Regarding the cardiology statement, you know, I helped write the sections there that were really about the general principles. And so I think at Stanford Cardiology, we use those principles. Those principles had been in practice for several years before the committee got started with its work. It was one reason why Bob and I, Dr. Harrington and I, were on the group, because we had spent a lot of time thinking about compensation and making some changes to our own plan that we felt would be helpful to everyone. As you mentioned, there's so many different types of practice environments and and so many different circumstances that it's difficult, I think, to adopt a set of principles that, you know, would apply to Stanford in a situation where you have a private practice, you know, group that has five physicians. So yes, or or 500 physicians, you know, there was a very large Midwest group that was that was represented on the committee as well. Uh huh. And I wonder, you know, if at the end of the day, like, that's the issue. I mean, you have a similar problem really with parental leave practices, you know, with the different types of practice environments. You can, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, and therefore, everyone just keeps doing what they feel like they know how to do. That's where I think the principle 
concept does matter because you have to ask yourself, what does our cardiology group want to achieve and how does that fit in the context? In our case, you know, we're a large department of medicine with many specialties, cardiology being one of them, but how does this fit in that context? Or if you were a private multi-specialty group practice, how would that fit? Or if you were just a large cardiology-specific practice, how would that fit? What are you trying to achieve? And I think one of the things that we spent some time talking about is it's not just about pay in cardiology. It's about gender imbalance across the specialty. There just are not women going into cardiology. And there are specifically not women going into interventional cardiology. And I think as a specialty, at least from the conversations that I've had with that group and with the chair of our department, we're asking why. Why is that? And I heard some interesting things on that committee that I thought were sort of, you know, not valid. I'm not sure that they were valid reasons for why women won't go into the specialty. But Is compensation one of them? I mean, I think it's fair to assume that women want to have good wages just like men do. But what is it about cardiology that that kind of keeps women out and then pay becomes one component of those things? And if you can at least solve the pay problem, maybe you can attract people in for other reasons as well. Yeah, it's a great point. And actually, if you look at the sort of top paying or the specialties and subspecialties with the highest compensation, those are exactly the areas where women are most underrepresented. Exactly. And it's it's really quite striking when you take a look at it. So let's get into sort of the nuts and bolts of some of this, because obviously you are really the perfect person to talk to about how compensation plans are structured and where kind of specifically we might look to fix some of the more, I guess, less obvious Mm -hmm. problems within that framework. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, and again, some of this is outlined in that that statement from the ACC from 2019. So I would, again, encourage people to go look at that because we're not going to get to everything here in this podcast Mm -hmm. episode. But if you could outline some of the common components of a compensation plan for a Mm -hmm. physician, maybe in an academic practice or academic medical setting like Stanford? Well, I think I'm going to leave aside talking about things like benefits because those vary so much by organization. Stanford has amazing benefits for not just its faculty, but also its employees that include a number of things. So I'm not going to considered those at the moment. But for academic physicians at Stanford, and frankly, I've worked for a long time at other institutions, and it was similar there, there are two major components. There is a base salary, which is what you take home in your check every two weeks and is set by your division or department as your base, usually by rank. So assistant professors will make sometimes less in their base than associates, and they will make less than professors. And then there is the incentive component of compensation, which matters for clinical practices like cardiology. So divisions that see a lot of patients have an opportunity to generate clinical revenue in partnership with others or with their hospital, and who can often have incentive compensation that makes up a you know a significant proportion of their total compensation. So when I use a term like total compensation, I'm really talking about the base plus incentive plus any other stipend or extra pay for things like roles such as division chief or clinic chief or medical director. And I want to come back to that point in a minute. So a few things that I think matter. So there is tons of data and I should have had the citations at my fingertips, but you can just Google it. There is tons of data that women 
don't negotiate for pay in the same way or as effectively as men do. So one of the first things that I believe you need to do is take negotiation out of the conversation for setting base salary. And I think that just by doing that one thing, you can achieve better equity. You might not have parity, but you get closer to parity. We use, in an academic setting, we use the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges data as our benchmark. But you know, other private practices might use the Medical Group Management Association. They might use other specialty data. It just depends. But almost everybody tries to benchmark against some national or regional data. So let's say the benchmark suggests that the median compensation for a brand new cardiologist right out of fellowship is, I'm going to make this up, $150,000. That becomes the starting point of our scale. And so what that does is when a division chief or a department chair, or if in the case of a private group practice, a practice administrator is, quote, negotiating with a faculty member or a physician for a job, they don't really negotiate that base. That base is set. And so the candidate, female or male, doesn't have to worry that the last person in the room negotiated something better. It has some downsides because sometimes people, candidates who are not familiar with it, will come in and expect to negotiate and will wonder if somehow they're missing out you know, on something. But I usually find that just explaining it does the trick. And most people understand and appreciate that they don't have to negotiate. And frankly, it saves a lot of time. But more importantly, it's fair. And it's more fair than just at, depending on an individual's negotiation skills to set their base pay. So that's how we do base pay. And I believe in that system. And I think at this point in time, most of us at Stanford believe in the system. So then what's the next? The next place is where you begin to see some differences by practice, and that is with incentive compensation. Everybody does this differently. In most cases, it's some formula that involves subtracting your salary from your revenue, the revenue that you bring in, whether that is clinical revenue or support from grants, or you know, perhaps you have an endowment because you were lucky enough to have a donor give you money or whatever. But some combination of your support, less your expenses, in our practice as an academic institution, we that the bulk of those expenses are the faculty members' own salary and benefits. In other like private practices, there's often an overhead charge or some other you know additional expense a doctor is asked to cover. Whatever's left over is the profit, so to speak, or the margin. And then there's some splitting of that so that some portion of it goes back to the physician and some portion of it you know, goes to their division or goes to the department or goes to their group practice if they're in a group practice. So it's that production-based clinical incentive that can often vary depending on what the doctor does. So if you are a general cardiologist, you are probably going to have less margin than if you're an interventional cardiologist. I think just from a sort of fairness kind of standpoint, you know, what you said about setting the base salary for starting physicians at the exact same point, that's, I feel at least that's the best place to start, right? Because then you kind of know everybody's sort of starting at the same point. And then where you go from there is clearly where things kind of take a turn in, in different directions. And, you know, whether or not you think 
compensating physicians for their clinical productivity is the right thing to do. <laughs> it's the thing we are doing right now. And I think, you know, in subspecialty areas like interventional cardiology, as you've mentioned, you know, we know, for example, that women are doing disproportionately fewer procedures than, than yeah. men. And therefore, that productivity kind of mark is lower, and therefore their compensation is lower. So there are all these nuances at play here, I think, across the board with all of this. And that, of course, is the classic statement made, right, which is, well, the women in the practice don't want to work full time, or the women in the practice, if they do interventions, aren't willing to wear lead, or the women in the practice don't produce as much as fast as the men. So it's just production. It's fair. It's just production. That's what we're doing. So here's my answer to that. Some of those things might be true. It might, they might be true for men as well. You know, some men might not want to work full time. Some men might not want to wear lead. It sort of depends. But I feel like what our job is as administrators or practice leaders is to say, does everyone have an equal opportunity if they are proceduralist or someone doing those more intense pieces of the specialty? Does everyone doing that have an equal opportunity to perform their work? So, for example, if you're running a cath lab, I want to be clear, I'm speaking generically because I'm not speaking about Stanford's cath lab by any stretch of the imagination. But if you're in charge of the cath lab schedule, Number one, who are you? Who's doing that work? How is that schedule determined? Who decides whether Dr. A should have three days a week in the cath lab or Dr. B should have and Dr. B should have two days a week? Who makes those decisions? Is there equity in making those decisions? And so as we have looked at this at Stanford, we've tried to say to our chiefs and to our practice leaders, you know, we want to make sure that everyone has an opportunity clinically to do the best clinical work they can. And we also want to give flexibility. There are people that will trade off money for other things. Like they might often early in academic careers, people, what they most want is time. They want time to develop their research ideas or their educational portfolio or whatever they are doing that is their particular academic interest. So then we ask, okay, well, then how do we fund that? And do we fund it the same for everyone? So if you're going to offer a man, a male member of the faculty, time as a new member of the faculty to develop his research interests, then when you hire a young woman into the group, you need to do the same for her. So one thing that people like me do and people like my boss and our chiefs is they're looking for those moments where we can make sure we're doing exactly the same for each person. And we're trying our best at least to institutionalize and systematize our approaches to those opportunities and to that compensation. It doesn't mean that we always achieve parity. In fact, I know we don't, but we want to try to identify barriers as often as we can and eliminate as many of them as are possible to eliminate. And if we can eliminate them, acknowledge them and see if there's some other way to mitigate that issue. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I would say, though, that, you know, clearly you care. (laughs) And clearly people like Bob Harrington care. Not everybody cares about this, right? I think in some, in fact, I, I don't know, I venture to say many cases, you know, the profit motive behind these decisions is perhaps more powerful than the equity motive, right? So you have these lingering 
inequity issues that persist. And I mean, this is in some ways unique to the United States. Many other parts of the world have different sort of reimbursement systems, you know, salary kind of based systems for their physicians. But even even then you see inequities. I mean, we've had conversations with our colleagues in the UK or in Canada or other parts of Europe that, you know, are noting that basically what you're describing is sort of base pay and then incentive compensation is quite different, either even in other parts of the world. And I think having this type of conversation, I hope, you know, where there is uh, some open dialogue about these issues in a way that's maybe not scathing to anyone in particular, but just is putting it out on the table, invites other conversations of this nature and ideally invites invites change. And I guess, you know, that sort of leads me to our final question here, which is, you know, having so much experience in this area and such passion, I think, for this area, as you've clearly shown, what would you <laughs> relay to other academic institutions who, who also care, but maybe don't quite know where to start? It's also complicated. What's a practical tip that you can give other sort of administrators in your position to start moving the ball forward in a positive way? Well, I think the first thing you need to do, well, I want to go back to what I said earlier about having principles. When we at Stanford in medicine, when we revised our plan across the department, which was now about five years ago, it was 2015. So we spent 10 weeks meeting with our chiefs every Friday morning for two hours about this. And I would say of those 10 weeks, we spent six of them on principles. And we didn't show numbers or get to any financial modeling until the very end of the conversations. We really spent the time saying what matters to us as a group, fairness, equity, simplicity, ability to explain it to people. So I always tell people to start there when I talk about compensation. I say, Think about what you're trying to achieve, what matters to you, whatever the you is. Is it a group? Is it a large division? Is it a department? Whatever. Just start with what are you trying to achieve? Because, you know, we like to make money, too. We, we use our money to support our academic mission. So having some margin matters to us. But we have to do it in a way that we believe is, you know, ethical and um, equitable to our faculty. The second thing I would say, which is so important, especially if you're dealing with a large group of people like we are at Stanford, I mean, our cardiology division is probably 80 to 85 physicians and our department as a whole is around 600 physicians. You need data and you need to look at your data in an aggregated way. You need to look at everybody on a spreadsheet or in a database you need to graphically look at it because when you look at are making compensation decisions onesie twosies, you know, just this doctor's in your office or that doctor's in your office or this chief is coming to, you know, ask you questions about it. You you can't see a pattern. You can't see where there are gaps. You have to look at it in a collective fashion. And I tell people to do that. I always say, do you have a compensation database that you can model? There's so many tools, you know, now, of course, compared to when I started, you had to use a pencil to do this stuff. But you can look at things graphically and you can slice and dice the data by gender or by rank or by rank and gender to just see, are the decisions that we are making holding true to the principles that we set? I look at our compensation in aggregate at the end of every fiscal year to just see, does something jump out? And not just me, by the way, because it takes more eyes than just one or two people. You know, 
does something jump out at us? Is something that we're doing getting away from those principles that we still review every year and we still commonly agree to? But for me, I always tell people, start with principles and then look at your own data. A hundred percent. Great points. And, and honestly, I think looking at your own data is kind of fun, right? Even if it shows you things that you're maybe not doing so well in, like you're learning and you're hopefully adjusting and you're improving. So I thank you for your time today. I feel like we could probably talk for another hour or two about this issue, but I've learned to keep the podcast somewhat short because everybody has a very short attention span these days. So hopefully they took away some some good messages and some key points here. And I would love to see us improve on this front. You know, I think it's an important issue. And I do believe, you know, just based on my own anecdotal experience that that there's a, a growing, I think, attention to this issue of equity, not just because it's being forced upon people, but because, you know, there should be. And I'm hopeful that, you know, we, we can have practical conversations like this and, you know, these ideas will be applied. So thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And thanks for, for being on the show. 